to see you. If you are just joining us, uh, guest, or just visiting, um, I'm glad you're here. If you want to take a Bible, uh, we are just starting a series on Mark, and we've got Bibles in the back of the round tables. You can grab one. As you do that or turn to your Bibles to the text that was just read, I want to tell you a story. It was December so of 2010, and Pam and I had just been back from uh, England for a year. I don't know if that's the reason. We didn't drive much in England or what, but we were up in Napa on vacation, driving around, and then all of a sudden, we ran out of gas on the side of the road. Um, there's not a lot going on in Napa. I don't know if you know that. Uh, there's some wineries, and they shut down early, and then there's nothing. And we were stuck. So in Yauntville, we saw that there was this gas station, and I walked over to the gas station. They were about to close, um, but fortunately I made it in, but unfortunately they didn't have any gas cans, and they couldn't help us. So I walked back to the car, it was some trek, and we got back to the car. When we got back to the car, I just realized that you know, we're out of resources. It's starting to get dark now. We're not seeing any cars driving by. It's starting to get cold. I realized that California didn't get that cold, but it was a particularly cold winter, and... Um, and we were some 10 miles from our, our hotel. And at that point, we started to kind of panic a little, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to get back? And we were totally out of resources. I think our cell phones were even dead at that time. I wonder, have you ever been in that place where you were completely out of resources? Where you don't have what you need to fix the problem that you face? Maybe some of you come in here that, this morning that way. I'm sure you do. You, you, have, you have an addiction that no matter how hard you try and no matter what method you seem to use, you just keep getting whipped. Or, or maybe you've got a problem with rage. And it keeps jumping out, and it's ruining, it's really ruining your relationship with your kids, and your spouse, your colleagues. And you feel ashamed and embarrassed, but you just don't feel like you're in control. Some of you come in here this morning in a world of hurt. Abuse from your childhood hangs over you like a cloud. And it seems like every interaction and reaction that you have in relationships, that it drives it. And you want to be free. But you don't know how to be free. Some of you are in here and you suffer from a deep sense of loneliness and no matter how much you try to pursue relationships, they just don't click and there's always a hole. And you don't know how to solve it. Some of you are here and you have a an estranged relationship in your family or strife or there's a child and you just don't know how to get to them. And you feel like you've tried everything. And you've been to the counselors. And nothing seems to help. You are out of resources. 
Or maybe you're suffering from some kind of physical ailment and the doctors, they can't seem to figure out what's wrong. The headaches persist, the sharp pain in the stomach, you can't concentrate at work, it's interrupting your life and schedule and relationships, and nobody seems to have the cure. Have you ever been in a place where you're just totally out of your depth? You have a problem that you're facing and you don't have resources. Well, if that's you this morning, then I have good news. Mark 1.1 begins this way, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been starting a series on Mark, and I looked in a very odd way at the very, uh, introduced the series two weeks ago, in a very odd way, we looked at the end of it, so I could give you somewhat of a, a taste of Mark's perspective and the flavor for Mark, but now we turn to the beginning where Mark introduces his, his gospel, his good news. Let's pray as we consider it. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and give us a vision of Jesus that we might live as the liberated children of God. Free us. Free the captives, O Lord. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to handle this this morning. We're going to look at the background to Mark's gospel. And then we're going to look at the revelation of Mark's gospel. So first, the background to Mark's gospel. When Mark opens his letter and he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's not talking about the genre of his book. Mark didn't know that his book later on would be called a gospel. Uh, Gospel in the ancient world simply means good news. And it had very specific connotations in the ancient world. It didn't mean any good news. It meant good news about the reign of a king. Mark's gospel was written to Christians in Rome. So I want you to picture it with me. You are a member of the Roman Empire. You live in a village and one day you heard that there's a a messenger coming from the imperial court. And he's going to deliver a message. And so the next day you go out with your friends to meet in the town center. And all of a sudden someone stands up a herald who has the royal insignia on him. And he says, I have gospel, good news. Caesar has put down the uprising of the barbarians in the north. He has established his reign and there is peace. And salvation for all. Good news. Gospel. See, in its ancient Roman context, it meant good news about a Caesar, the Roman Empire, and how his rule would establish peace and security. If you read an ancient biography of Caesar Augustus, it would begin the beginning of the good news of Caesar Augustus. But you know, Romans, they weren't the only ones who were looking for proclaiming good news about a king. In fact, good news about their king meant bad news for certain people like Jews. Because the way that Romans kept the peace was through crucifixion, crucifying Jews. 
So the Jews, they look for another message of good news about another king. We read about it in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah writes, Go up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, of gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, of gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah proclaims good news, and did you hear it? It's good news about a king. Good news about a coming king, a king who comes to reign. And who is that king? It's God. Behold your God. Behold, he comes in might. See, this is good news about the inbreaking rule of God, verse 10. And to understand why it's such good news, you have to understand the situation that these words address. When Isaiah writes these words, he's addressing a situation in which the people of God are in a very, very dark period. Years of wickedness and rebellion and injustice, of worshiping idols and rejecting God, has led to God's finally enacting the covenant curse. He leaves Jerusalem. His spirit leaves the temple and he leaves his people. He gives them over, powerless, to the foreign nations. The Babylonians come in and they sack Jerusalem. They destroy their houses. They kill their children, dashing their heads, their children's heads, literally against the rocks by the river. And they totally destroy their temple. They lead them off into slavery. If you want a picture of how bad it would have been for the Israelites at that time, just think of the images you've seen of Syria today. Isaiah writes that it would be like Egypt all over again, where they were enslaved for 400 years under the rule of foreign people, oppressed by them, and under the cloud of their gods. And it's in that situation to those people that Isaiah promises a day when God would intervene, when he would come with his mighty arm, when he would establish his rule, he would defeat Israel's enemies, he would rescue them from slavery, and he would lead them like a shepherd back to Jerusalem where he would live with them forever. And that is good news. So that when they passed through the waters, he would be with them. And when they walked through the fire, they would not be burned. And this is the background that Mark has in mind when he begins his gospel. Mark's gospel is about the inbreaking rule of God. That's what gospel means. Look, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah... Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. 
Gospel means good news. And it's good news about God breaking in and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Mark, when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, he's quoting from earlier in that chapter, Isaiah chapter 40, and he says, God is coming, prepare the way. The Lord is going to come for you. That's what gospel means. It's good news about the inbreaking rule of God. That's why Jesus goes around and he proclaims gospel. The kingdom of heaven, the rule of heaven is at hand. Tom Wright puts it like this. When we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as our story and see it as the story of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. When you understand the inbreaking rule of God, being and doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, it, it leads to astonished gratitude. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, the inbreaking rule of God, the God coming and reigning in righteousness, that doesn't seem to produce astonished gratitude in me. And you're right. That message will not produce astonished gratitude in, in you unless and until you come to the place where Israel came to, where you realize that you are out of resources and you have a problem that you cannot solve. You see, that the first thing that the backdrop to, to Mark's gospel causes us to ask is this, Am I needy? Am I out of resources? Do I have a problem that I can't solve? Because when you do, then you will cry out like, like Isaiah cried out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I was at our general assembly and I was meeting with another pastor and we hadn't talked in a while. We were having dinner that night and he said, how, how are things going? It was a particularly difficult season in our life, and we were facing some major challenges. Uh, we were battling infertility at that time, and, uh, and that had drained our bank accounts. Um, we also were facing, I was facing conflicts in the church, and uh, people that were unhappy with my ministry, and I couldn't seem to please them. And at the same time, um, we had some serious uh, Serious, facing serious difficulties in our extended family. And, uh, and I was explaining this to this pastor when I asked me how things are going. I'm like, this is, this is life for me right now. And I did so with tears in my eyes. And he looked at me and he said, Kyle, you're a very competent person. But you got three, pro- three problems. You're facing three things that no competent person can fix. You can't fix your infertility. You can't fix these conflicts at church, and you can't fix the problems in your extended family. He goes, I tell you what, that'll drive you to prayer. It'll drive you to seek God. It needs to drive you to prayer. It needs to drive you to seek God. It needs to drive you to look for a solution that's outside yourself because because your tank is out of gas. And all the stores are closed. I was talking with someone once very competent, very accomplished in their field, and I was asking them, 
they had been away from God for a while. They had been away from the faith. And I asked them, how did you come back? And this person said to me, well, I got to the place where I was so depressed in life that I was a vegetable. I couldn't do my work. I couldn't interact with my family. I couldn't be a good father or husband. And I was totally helpless. I said, I guess what brought me back is I had come to the place where I was needy. See, the only way Mark's gospel will sound like good news to you and the message that Isaiah proclaims about the inbreaking rule of God to do something that you can't do for yourself, the only way that'll happen is if you come to the place where you recognize your need. And then you will say, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. So my question for you this morning is, do you recognize your need, or do you live in denial? The New Testament scholar, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Ernst Kaseman, said that, human be- that the human being is the only living creature who can shut our eyes, ears, and reason when reality is unpleasing. And we do it all the time. We do it by vegging out on Netflix one after another. We do it by social media and our distractions. And, and even there, when we have, um, when we have you know, newsreels of Syria coming up on our... Uh, we can just flash over it really fast and we don't have to sit there on it, you know? So we see it, we know about it, but we can distract ourselves in the midst of it. We distract ourselves and medicate through uh, work. We medicate and distract ourselves through working out. We medicate and distract ourselves through alcohol and substance abuse. But the only way that we can, I would say, live in a place where we, re- where we don't realize, where we think we are competent, where we think that we can solve all our problems, is if we live in denial, one, about our real problems, and two, if we don't live in solidarity with the rest of humanity. Because when you start to actually reflect on what's happening in Syria, you start to realize that, guess what? No political solution is going to solve that problem. We start to reflect on the situation of sex trafficking in the world. You realize that actually no solution is going to solve that problem. No human solution. And then you start to cry out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And the only way that we can not have that prayer is if we live in our distracted, isolated, individual lives. And so we pray, God come. But what would it be like for him to come? You know, it's interesting when Mark says that he is, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, and then goes on to quote quote scripture, he doesn't just quote from Isaiah. There's only one line really from Isaiah at the end. And most of what he's quoting there is from Malachi. You think, well, why Malachi? It's in Malachi 3. He quotes from Malachi 3 because he wants us to, to understand Isaiah within a particular perspective. 
See, Malachi 3 is said in the context of a people who are complaining to God because the long-awaited promises of salvation that Isaiah talked about have not been fulfilled. And they're complaining and they're saying, God, when are you going to come and why aren't you coming? And Malachi re responds, God responds in, through the prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, Malachi is saying, or God through the prophet Malachi is saying, Listen, I promise to do it, and I am going to come. I am going to come. But it might not be the unmitigated blessing that you expect. Look, he goes on, verse 2. I will come, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In other words, what Malachi is saying is what the prophets have said throughout, and that is this, that when God comes in all his saving power, that he comes to save by judging the world in righteousness. That God's salvation, that the way salvation works in the Bible is like chemotherapy. You know chemotherapy? Chemotherapy is used as a cancer treatment, and the idea is, is that when cancer has invaded your body and it is spreading rapidly all throughout your body systemically, uh, chemotherapy comes and it, it is injected into your body to attack the disease that is spreading throughout. But it attacks everything. It is ridding your body of the cancer. Pam's a dietitian. I don't know if you knew that, but Pam's a dietitian, and I'm a pastor, so that makes first impressions at parties always interesting. When we're talking to people, you know, we're sitting there, and we introduce ourselves to another couple, and we haven't made ourselves over to the refreshments yet, and, you know, uh, one of the members of the couple is holding a, a, a big kind of chocolate cake, and the other member of the couple is holding, like, some wine, and, uh, and they're like, oh, what do you do? And Pam's like, well, I'm a dietitian, and the chocolate cake goes down, and I say, well, I'm a pastor and the wine goes down and then they kind of walk away from us at that point Pam picks up the chocolate cake I pick up the wine and it's a great evening most people when they talk to Pam and find out that she's a dietitian they think that that she's judging them about what they eat and that they're like oh I bet you you know I bet you um you eat really healthily and, and that you help people lose weight. And what they don't understand is that Pam actually worked in pediatric oncology. So her job was actually not to help people lose weight. Her job was to fatten kids up and help them maintain their weight so that when they face chemotherapy, they would make it through the other side. Her job was to make sure that that they would be ready for the treatment so that the treatment would have a saving effect on them. Her job was one of preparation. And Malachi, he's saying, Behold, I'll send my messenger before you, and he will prepare the way of the Lord, because God is coming. But here's the question Who can endure? Are you ready? See, if the first question that the background to Mark's gospel gets us to ask is, 
Am I needy? The second question that the background to Mark's gospel gets us to ask is, am I ready? Am I ready for the saving judgment of God? Will I make it through? See, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears for? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In other words, Malachi is saying, you better get ready. Enter John the Baptist, verse 4. We read, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt and around his, wa- around his waist, where else would you wear it? I always wondered that. Uh, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's ministry was a ministry of preparation. And what John is preparing people for is the coming wrath of God. The impending day of salvation and judgment. And he is getting people ready for that. And the way that he's getting people ready for that is he is telling them, you need to repent. Actually, you need to turn. You need to make sure that you're ready. And the way that he would do that, that was enacted in baptism. You see, what baptism said is, baptism said that the rebel who considered himself in his own, to be his own God and lived from the illusion of autonomy and self-sufficiency, that that rebel must drown, must be judged, and must be raised to new life. And so John, he went out into the wilderness, and what they were doing is they were going through, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, into the wilderness, into the desert. And they were saying something by that. They were saying this, God, we realize we're in exile. We're not home. We realize that covenant curse is still there. And we are here waiting for you to bring about the exodus. And we're here preparing ourselves for your coming. That's what John ministry was like. In other words, John's ministry was, to the Israelites at that time, was kind of what Pam did for children, getting them ready for the chemotherapy. That's what John is doing, but who, who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Well, that brings us to the Revelation. We've looked at the background to Mark's gospel. What about the revelation of the good news? And the passages that come, and the, the, the sections that come that follow, we find two passages, two scenes, which reveal a great deal about Jesus' identity and mission that set us up for the rest of the gospel. And, and Mark is wanting to reveal several things to us here. First, Mark reveals that Jesus is the one who enacts the rule of God. We pick up the story in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, understand um, this scene. You need to know something about Jewish history. 
In this day, there was a certain genre of literature. It was called apocalyptic. That genre of literature, and that genre of literature, uh, someone, a prophet or something like that, they would have a vision. And in that vision, the heavens would open. And God would reveal what's going on in the world and what's going, on, going to, be, to come. And an apocalyptic genre, it, it always came hand in hand with what you would call an apocalyptic worldview or outlook on life. In other words, these Jews were not like normal Jews. These Jews had, had given up the prospects that God was going to work through normal means to bring about salvation. That, that it wasn't going to be through religious leaders or political leaders. That actually um, God was going to have to just intervene and bring a cataclysmic, cosmic judgment on the world. That he was going to break in. And this is what they were looking for. And they had given up hope on the current world order and on any sense of it coming to fruition in that way. Now, when we had this scene with Jesus looking up after he comes up out of the water into heaven and having this vision of the heavens being torn open and of the Spirit descending, Mark is saying... This is the apocalypse. This is the revelation. And for Mark, note that he doesn't use the docile word, the heavens opened. No, he says that they were ripped open or torn apart. That this is a dynamic invasion of God. And in God's dynamic invasion, he is answering the cry Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would rip apart the heavens and come down. And he does. The splitting of the heavens in verse 10 signals that God's long-awaited intervention has arrived. And what does it look like? Well, notice that it doesn't look like what most people thought that it would look like. When God invades the world... It's not a word of judgment that we see first, but a word of grace. Ernst Caseman again says it like this, The end of the world does not begin with the imminent, imminent cosmic wrath of God. According to the New Testament, the end of the world begins with the appearance of the one on whom the heavens opened, on whom the Spirit descended, and of him who it was announced, My Son, My Beloved. He drives out the demons, opens eyes and ears, awakens the sleeping and the dead, and brings freedom to all of us who live in, chains of, in the chains of unreason and passion and weakness and guilt of all the earth gone mad in its tyranny. See, God's word, his first word when the heavens are ripped open is, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. It's a word over humanity of grace. And what Mark is saying is that God has enacted his rule and he's enacted it through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning, do you need to be delivered from something? Do you have a problem that you can't solve? Look to Jesus. He is God's answer. He is God intervening in this world. 
John says it in so many ways. In verse 3, he is the, the one who, who, he is the Lord who the way was prepared for. Or in verse 7, John the Baptist points and he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might, Isaiah said. So Jesus is the mighty one. He is the one who exercises the mighty reign of God. That's the first thing that Mark reveals. The second thing that the passage reveals, though, is that this battle that Jesus comes to wage war in, the cosmic, the conflict that he comes it's, it, to, to, uh, to establish, it's bigger than you think, actually. It's way bigger than you think. Uh, look how the text goes on. It says in verse 12 that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out of the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. Now, is that not a strange scene? There are no humans, except for Jesus. So we have Jesus, we have wild animals, we have Satan, we have the angels, and the Spirit driving him out. What's going on here? What's going on here? Throughout the book of Mark, we see that there are these conflicts that arise. Conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. Conflicts between, and political leaders. Conflicts between Jesus' followers and those who are opposed to Jesus. And here Mark is taking a step back and he wants you to know that in and behind those seemingly pedestrian interactions lies a cosmic conflict. That actually those people on the ground are not the only players in the game. Mark is trying to get you to see that that it's not simply that it's, um, you know, Jesus and his disciples on the one hand and the Pharisees and religious leaders on the other. Mark wants you to see that actually uh, that it is angels and the spirit on the one hand and the demons and Satan on the other. And that's why one of the first things that Jesus does is he goes and he casts out a demon. And they say, have you come to destroy us, O Holy One of Israel? Yes, he has. That's the gospel of Mark. And, and so, Mark wants you to realize that, that even the wild animals, the wild beasts, that they are co-opted by the demonic forces, you see. That there's much more going on here than just meets the eye. Uh, that, that behind these seemingly pedestrian interactions lies a cosmic war. And that when God comes in to his world, he comes into contested territory. I'm thinking about it like this. You go on vacation. You go on vacation for a little while and you come back and you find out there are squatters in your house. They have taken over. And so when you come into your home, you find out that you, you, have, to, you have to actually kick these squatters out. That there's a, that there's a conflict that happens. But more than that, you left your child with someone, and the child and the babysitter, well, guess what? They've been taken captive too. So when you come in, the biggest problem that you face in delivering uh, and getting back your home and delivering your child is not simply your child's Stockholm Syndrome, the fact that they like these new squatters. You've actually got to kick the squatters out. That's the big deal. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because Mark is trying to present a, a view of the world that is very hard for us as moderns to understand, but I think we must understand it. 
we must understand it. That behind the seemingly pedestrian interactions that we have, that there is a a cosmic war, that the demons are still alive and well today, that Satan really does exist, and that, and that, it's not, that his activity is not separate from human interactions. That, that, that behind the conflicts in Syria, there are demons. That behind the sex trafficking industry, there are demons. That behind the rampant enslavement to pornography that we see in our society, there are demons. That behind the conflicts in the church, there are demons. That they play out all over the world. And that we are in a battle. And I'm telling you this because I don't want you to bring a knife to a gunfight. Have you seen that movie, The Untouchables? In Untouchables, there's the scene where uh, some intruder comes into Sean, the character played by Sean Connery's house. And uh, Sean Connery uh, kind of shuts the door and he's sneaking up on the character sneaking up on uh, Sean Connery. It's very om- ominous. And, uh, and the guy has a knife. And all of a sudden, Sean Connery turns around and he has a double barrel shotgun. And he says, it would be like you to bring a knife to a gunfight. I'm not going to tell you how it keeps going on because that would ruin my illustration. But, <laughs> so block that if you know. And don't watch the movie. But I'm really concerned that the church of Jesus Christ today is bringing a knife to a gunfight. I am. And the reason I am is because I don't think that we believe what Mark believes. And the reason that I know that is because we never talk about demons. We never talk about Satan. We never pray against them. And I'm seriously disconcerted. Because I don't think that we know that the mental illness that we see around us on the streets, it's not just neurons, people. I don't think that we realize that the identity politics that we see going on around us, that it's, it's, not just, it's not just people making autonomous choices who are free. There's no such thing as a free person. There's no such thing as a free thing. You are either in possession of demons and Satan, or you are in possession of the Lord of the universe. And you got to serve somebody. I was recently reminded, uh, this, someone reminded um, me of this this week. They talked about, you know, when the Lord saves somebody, it takes a lot of work. I mean, it, the Bible talks about him bearing his strong arm. And I think that's absolutely true. But the primary reason it takes a lot of work is not simply because of their hardness of heart. It's because they are possessed by the devil. Period. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to do cosmic war. Most of us have a two-dimensional view of reality. We think that reality is basically us and us making choices in this world, and we make choices for good or for ill. Some of us would add to that mix that there's God, and so we either choose to follow him and obey him or not, or we choose salvation or not. But Mark, he wants to give us a three-dimensional view of reality. One morning, I got a call from Pam. I was in seminary, and she had gone to help her friend Nicole jumpstart her car. I found out that, uh, that when they tried to jumpstart the car, uh, it didn't work so well. And the next thing I knew, the engine was smoking. Uh, things were, um, like, spilling out, and the plastic on her car melted. What happened was is that 
she and her friend, they, they cranked the cars and they put the uh, charges on the wrong uh, things, right? And so, um, and so I get there and I'm thinking, I'm, this could have been very, very dangerous, right? The, the guy uh, was like, the AA, AAA person that came, he was like, you, you better be glad that this didn't just blow up. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's an easy problem to solve. They, they would have just read the manual. If they had just read the manual, then they would have done it correctly, and they would have put the right, the right charge on the right thing. They would have put the negative charge on the black negative receptor. They would have put the positive charge on the red positive receptor. And, and that's what I thought, too. I can understand why you think it, because I thought that in the drama that played out this morning, there was really just Pam and Nicole and the battery. But what came to be revealed later is the last people who worked on Pam's car and who fixed it, they actually put the red positive cap on the negative charge receptor. And they put the black negative cap on the red positive charge receptor. And so, guess what? No amount of reading the instructions would have helped because there was another player in the game. There are other players in the game. This is not a two-dimensional drama. There are angels and demons. And people are possessed. And we need to pray. And we need to call out that God would rend the heavens and come down. And they happen over all kinds of pedestrian interactions that we have. 1 John 5:19 says, We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But I wonder, do we know it? Do we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? Do we know it? Do we know that Syria lies in the power of the evil one? Do we know that the sex trafficking industry lies in the power of the evil one? Do we know that in our Western world where people are under the delusion that they make autonomous, self-willed, competent choices that they are under the power of the evil one? And think, well, I don't feel like I'm in the power of the evil one. I mean, sure, that stuff happens in Africa and China, but not here. No, that's the whole problem. You know the greatest lie, that the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled? Kaiser Sose, usual suspects, convincing the world that he didn't exist. But you know what? Before the usual suspects, there was Paul. In sin, Romans 7, deceived me and killed me. And by sin, you better believe he means Satan because he's actually alluding to Genesis 3. Satan, the serpent, deceived the woman and killed her. You see, the more we think that this isn't a reality the more we are under its power. And it happens in the church, which is why later in Mark's gospel, Jesus will say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It happens in the church. So Mark, he's wanting to reveal that Jesus enacts the rule of God. He's wanting to reveal that the battle is way bigger than you think. Way bigger than you think. And I know that this is, listen, I hate, I, I hate preaching on this. I hate it. And I want to tell you why I hate it. 
I hate it because... I hate it because, on the one hand, this is not what we grow up in Sunday school thinking or hearing. I didn't. And so when I say it, people are like, that sounds weird and odd, and why are you talking about this? Right? And so I realize that this is not a popular thing to preach. It's like, can you just tell me about like, forgiveness of sins? Because that really moves me. Right? But that's because we don't understand that we need to be released from the devil. The second reason I hate it is because I feel oppression when I preach it. And I feel oppression studying for it, and I feel oppression now. And so, oh God, that you would rid the heavens and come down, that you would fight and send your ministering angels, that we might live as the liberated children of God, and that you would release people here who are captive. Because I feel it. And I was talking to somebody this week, and that's some great advice in preaching, and I really appreciate it. They said, one of their instructors told them, it was Jonathan, I'll tell you, and he said, he said you know, when you preach, uh, hit the center of the text. I think that's great advice. And I believe this is in the center of the text in Mark. And that's why he opens it like this. That in Mark, salvation is about Jesus coming to deliver us from the evil one and for the demonic forces of this world. That the story of salvation is a story of liberation for a world that is held under the power of the devil. Because do we know that the whole world was under the power of the devil? I don't think we do. But when we start to realize that there's something else that we need to know, that the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. And he does it when we proclaim his power and his saving work. So the second thing Mark reveals is that the battle is bigger than you think. But the third thing that Mark reveals is he reveals who survives the judgment. You know, a lot of people were baptized that day in the Jordan. That's what Mark tells us. That all of Jerusalem and Judea were coming out. That John's ministry was very successful. But you know, over one, only over one did the heavens split. And when God intervened, what happened? We hear these words, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So here's the question, we've been asking it this whole time, who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand? You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus can. He's the only one who can. He's the only one over whom those words were spoken that day. See, when God comes in might, when the chemotherapy comes, there's only one who is the mighty one who can pass through and make it to the other side. He's the only one who can stand, and he can stand for you. You see, in this text, we see that Jesus goes through the water and into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. Does that remind you of anyone? Like Israel who goes through the water and into the wilderness. And Mark's trying to say that Jesus is the new and true Israel. That he's the Israel that stands. That he's the Israel that makes it through. That he is the, the true person of the people of God. That he's our representative and he can represent you. 
one night I got a call, or one morning I got a call, and Pam was very shaken up. I was at a presbytery meeting in L.A., and I found out that the night before, there was a building that was adjacent to ours that caught on fire. The fire was so big that you could see it some 100 yards away over the other buildings on State Street. And it was really scary. Pam described the events of that night, and one of the things that happened is this fire, it lit up right next door to a young couple who had a tiny little three-month-old baby. And Pam actually um, heard them, and the, the gal, uh, she yelled to her husband, Peter, Peter, you know, get our child. And then uh, Peter, the dad, he ran through the doors, and he ran through a flaming, fiery hallway, and he ran through with his child. You know, if he had not done that, that child was not strong enough to make it through. That child did not have the resources to get through. That child would have died. But he carried his child, and he represented his child, and he went through, his, he went through that fire. And the child went through with him in his arms. And here's the question. Only one can stand. Are you in him? Are you his? Are you in his arms? Because if you are, then when you pass through the water, he will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not get burned. Well, when I was back at Napa that day and it was getting dark and we had no resources, all of a sudden a police officer came and, uh, and I had explained to him what had happened, that I was an idiot and I didn't use my idiot light and I ran out of gas. And, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, um, he called Caltrans. And he said, well, they'll bring you a couple uh, gallons of gas. I was like, oh, how much is this going to cost me? He said, oh, it's free, paid for by taxpayers. Awesome. Thanks, California. <laughs> and so, uh, so he said, they'll be here in 10 minutes. He gave me this news. I tell you what, when we were out of resources... He said, Caltrans is coming. They got the resources, and guess what? It's free. You better believe that night, that was good news. And if you're out of resources this morning, then I have good news. Good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen.